Welcome back everybody to The Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this new week, this Monday. Lots to discuss as always, so let's dive right in. Well, we start off again today with a horrific act of gun violence, this time in Monterey Park, California. 11 people now dead due to this mass shooting here from USA Today. A hero emerged, victims' names were released, and this close-knit, predominantly Asian-American city was in mourning as the death toll from an elderly man shooting rampage rose to 11 on Monday. The Los Angeles County Department of Health Services said Monday that one of the four people from Monterey Park shooting being treated at the LA County USC Medical Center has died of gunshot wounds, and so that's what brought it from 10, which was the originally reported number, to now 11. A department's news release said another of the wounded patients was in serious condition and the two others were recovering. And so as y'all know, I'm not huge on diving into a bunch of specifics about the shooter because it seems sometimes that attention is part of the deranged intention of the shooter. So we won't focus too much on this, but this was a 72-year-old individual who did the shooting and went to a place at this Lunar New Year celebration um, at a dance studio that he had been before, that he had participated in activities there. And so we'll wait to get more information confirmed on the specifics of that, which is truly horrifying. And so we have to, of course, when events like this happen, discuss the event, the event that's important by itself. And also, what this means about the unique problem we have in the United States with gun violence. We've had 33 mass shootings this year. Yes, as in the year that just started 23 days ago. Um, and this is being discussed here on MSNBC. Let's take a look. Uh, the mass shooting in Monterey Park, California over the weekend is the deadliest in the U.S. since the massacre in Uvalde, Texas last May, when 19 children and two teachers were killed. There have been at least 33 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year, and it's still only January. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive, which defines a mass shooting as at least four people injured or killed. By that calculation, there were 648 mass shooting in the country last year. And even though that was down just slightly from 2021, that's nearly double the number recorded five years ago when there were 336. And according to Pew Research, gun murders in particular have climbed sharply in recent years. The 19,384 gun murders that took place in 2020 were the most since at least 1968, exceeding the previous peak in 1993. The 2020 total represented a 34% increase from the year before, a 49% increase over five years, and 75% increase over 10 years. Major metropolitan areas also saw increases in murders last year. For example, in 2022, Washington, D.C. recorded back-to-back -back years with 200 murders. For the first time in nearly 20 years, and suffice it to say, there are developed countries that don't have this problem, Joe. Well, uh, we are the ones with the quite unique issue in the developed world with this problem. Um, and so this discussion has to be had because it always has to be 
pushed for what are we going to do to prevent things like hap uh, this from happening in the future, not just understand that it happened right now because we don't want this to continue to be an epidemic in our country. And while it's not all the guns, of course, the responsibility goes on the individual who did this act of violence in all the different situations we talk about, we do have to discuss the real pragmatic ways we can prevent such devastation. And one of those is through regulation of guns in ways that other countries do, but we don't. And then the topic Republicans say they are willing to discuss, because they're not willing to discuss guns, is mental health. And that's also a factor. And so addressing all these solutions should be the action that we're pushing for. But instead, we do the same cycle. Something horrible happens. A lot of people who don't want the solutions that I'm talking about here to be put through avoid answering that question directly, try to distract from the real solutions, and then we forget about it um, and we move on and we don't get actual legislation, actual action, actual change on the issue of gun violence. And so there are so many different factors, but the reason why we focus in so much on gun violence is because that's one of the unique variables, sorry, I should say gun regulation in regard to gun violence is because that's one of the unique variables setting us aside from other developed countries that don't have as bad of a problem with this as we do. And so it is mental health, it is addressing uh, proper investment in communities so that the environment is not set up in such a way where this is more likely. It is all these different things, but also regulating guns properly, reasonable action on that so that it's not so easy for somebody who is deranged, who does have this intention to carry that out. It shouldn't be controversial. It should be pretty easy to come to a compromise on either side if we lived in a reasonable world. But of course, you know, it is not. The last detail about the story that was fascinating um, as we close, it, close this out and heroic as the article noted there is an individual whenever the shooter uh, left the first location and attempted to go to, if I'm not mistaken, a second location, or at least attempting to do a second round of shootings, a bystander actually stopped the shooter and prevented them from doing further violence upon so many innocent people, which was absolutely amazing of that individual. Of course, we're thinking of all the people in Monterey Park, California, and this has to stop, has to stop. Diamond of Diamond and Silk fame has passed away and her funeral was over the weekend. Now, Diamond was very pro-Trump and so the organizers asked Trump to speak at this event. Now, this is one of the strangest spe uh, speeches you'll hear in a very long time because this is a funeral or an event celebrating the life of Diamond and Trump gets on his normal rantings. Now, we've seen these strange videos come out of Trump at Mar-a-Lago showing up at weddings for some reason. And I guess he's asked to speak. So he starts wandering around talking about um, the stolen election and all these different things and how bad Joe Biden is. And it just doesn't fit the event. This is a wedding or it's a random event, a bunch of who knows who doing something at Mar-a-Lago and he starts ranting. That's weird enough. But at a funeral, even more weird. I will note, I think the audience loved it though which is the weirdest part of all of this. Um, and I'll show you at the end, one of the other speakers hyping up Trump. So with all that being said, as we watch this, just release yourself of the context you have of Trump, 
knowing that he is just completely off the walls and try to only hold the thought in your mind of this is a former president speaking at a funeral and this is what's going down how do we stop the cheating how do we stop it where you get more votes but you still don't win and the answer is the republicans have to get tougher the top people have to get tougher and and you have to really swamp them there's a level at which even they can't produce and so if you win big enough, you're going to get there. And then once we're there, we're going to straighten it all out and get it back to where it was. But I just. So that talking point is one of the weirder ones I hear so often because you'll hear the election denier uh, talking points, which is the Democrats were able to coordinate with all these different countries and all these different individuals to dump ballots in all these different places, big massive dumps, and then also flip votes in voting machines at their will. And they're so advanced, they were able to steal an election that was gonna go all the way in Trump's favor. They don't provide any evidence to that, but that's the claim, right? And then they say, but if we vote enough times, they won't which doesn't make sense to me. If you have the power to just flip votes in voting machines, why would 10,000 more votes in a particular state make a difference? But logic is not necessary with these situations, as you know. So again, we're talking about the life of Diamond, and this is honoring, this is a funeral, and this is what's happening. Um, then he complains about the length, I guess, of the service. Thing, and, and I don't believe, you know, they told me said, give me a little time, because I have a lot of people waiting for me back in. I know this clip is quiet, but bear with me. A place called Palm Beach, Florida. They said, give me a little time. What do you think it'll take? Oh, about 15, 20 minutes, sir, in and out. I said, well, it could take longer. This is a little longer than 15 minutes, right? Another strange thing to do at a funeral. You guys are really taking up a lot of my time. Uh, and apparently it was three plus hours, so definitely longer than 15 minutes and then he continues ranting about the things he wants to talk about and i do want to say we're completely honest here he also honored diamond i'm not saying this is the only thing that happened but this is the part that's like wait what and that's why i'm showing it to you that you know things we can fix inflation we can fix so much of what's been damaged over the last two years we had it going so well but we can fix these things but you know, millions of people, I think 15 million people, they say three, maybe four. I know, no, I think it's, they have no idea how many people. And they allowed their prisons to be emptied out into the United States of America. They allowed their mental institutions to be emptied out into the United States of America. And common sense would tell you that if you had come. He's very passionate about these subjects. Common sense, you wouldn't be doing that. Mike would know that, but you wouldn't be doing this. Millions and millions of people are coming, and no country would be able to withstand this. No country, whether you're rich or poor, and uh, we're not really rich. We owe, as of this morning, $31 trillion. So I don't know, you call it rich, I guess. I don't know. Maybe not. We spend a lot of money on other countries, and many of those countries hate us, so we give. Yeah, so you get the point. Um, very very odd not what i would choose to do i'm very passionate about politics a lot of my friends hear too much about politics from me and i get the urge to discuss politics in a lot of situations a funeral i wouldn't be particularly inclined to carry that trend over but like i said 
the audience was into this. Take a look. And the other speakers as well. Simon is talking to Jesus and she is saying, Jesus, please make sure that Donald J. Trump is the next president of the United States of America. So it went from a funeral for Diamond to a rally for Trump, but Diamond was a supporter of Trump. So I guess maybe this was the uh, hope in some form or another. I don't really know how to perceive that. Imagine if Barack Obama or any other former president that you would list off did that. Imagine if it was a Democrat, the field day Fox News would have. How unprofessional, how unpresidential. Some places are not fitting to have politics discussed. But this is how Trump is spending um, those events. Very odd. Donald Trump Jr weighed in on the globalists pushing communism across the world that is quite the concern among the right wing as of late. And I'm going to show this to you a little incoherent as usual, a little frantic, but we'll try to decipher some meaning. Guys, it's great when the lunatics finally out themselves and one by one, these globalist world leaders are outing themselves to the public. Make no mistake. Okay. At the World Economic Forum. These are the globalists. These are the people that want you eating bugs and eliminating meat and eliminating your ability to own anything independently, but you'll take care. I will say, as someone who is on the left and a part of this global cabal, apparently, according to Donald Trump Jr., I definitely want everyone eating bugs. <laughs> bugs are my favorite. Uh. you and you'll be really really happy they're pushing communism times 10 this is insanity but we're letting them get away with it i know it sounds so out there it's very very out there except when you look at what's actually going on right everything that's talked about the new world order it's another conspiracy theory folks everything's a conspiracy theory until a few months later when it's proven to be 100 percent right and why mm, give me the examples of the amount of times that's happened with you donald trump jr we'll continue with this clip but it does always tickle me whenever individuals like donald trump jr have to stop themselves to recognize to the audience that even they get that what they're saying sounds bonkers and have to go oh i know you're gonna say it's a conspiracy theory um yeah i sound completely goofy but it's true, I promise. Why would we need a digital infrastructure with these new mRNA vaccines? <laughs> They're gonna mandate mRNA vax, control your movements to, if you refuse to take them, are they gonna shut you off? Honestly, is it that far-fetched right now? You know, it sounds, even a few years ago, if you said that, you'd be like, wow, that's crazy. Until you look at how they're behaving, what they're telling us we should consume, what they themselves do, and the hypocrisy, no more. We're not communist China, and we're not going to tolerate it. Enough is enough. Okay. Um, I really think about sometimes the phenomenon of, or I guess, trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who turns on the guy they want to hear from, Donald Trump Jr., and is told about the scary global, um, glo you know, the globalist communist bug-eating agenda, right? And 
how they're going to shut you off, as he said, if you don't get the mRNA vaccine. And what that would feel like if I actually bought into it. And that is scary. And I've met people who genuinely believe these things. And it's part of why I care so much about pulling people out of that, because you realize their life is so much more anxious and so much more um, angry about the world. And what bothers me is we have things to be angry about that actually are going on. We have real issues in the country and in the world that we should be spending our time and energy focusing on. But a whole block of our country is trying to stop the mythical uh, communism that's taking over in America. And when you're fighting something that doesn't exist, you're not fighting something that does exist, right? You're wasting time doing nothing pretty much, worrying about nothing when we could be uniting around something as simple as that sounds. And so I think sometimes I would assume that someone like myself, who's on the left, who's progressive, would, under Donald Trump uh, Jr.'s definition of the globalist, would fall into that just because I'm not a right winger. And my response whenever I hear either in my personal life or just covering stuff like this, that type of conspiracy, I wish I could respond to them. And sometimes I do if it's in my personal life. I just want to give you health care. I just want to make sure that the top, uh, you know, the tip, tip, top of our economic ladder doesn't have all of the power in the country and that you get a fair wage and are able to negotiate fair conditions at your job and that our criminal justice system, our judicial process treats people fairly, that we can have a reasonable push for equality in the country and all these different things, all these different areas that exist that are real things we could be pushing for. That's it. There's not some horrible devious plot that much of the left is pushing for. It's stuff like that. And we want to invest in public education so individuals have a better shot in life. And we could go on and on, but we can't actually, because instead we have to first explain why there's not a globalist plot to push communism going on. And it's really sad to see, because I really do think about it like that. Every minute that's spent worrying about and preparing to fight the communism in the United States in a country that quite literally has zero communist politicians in power right now um, is a minute we're not spending on actual conversations about actual problems that we have in the United States. And it's really sad to see. Let me know what you think. Luke P. Beasley on Twitter. Well, the right wing seems to be turning on Marjorie Greene, at least some of the right wing. And I got to say, a yummy, yummy in my tummy tummy. It's very <laughs> um, fun to watch. And so I'm going to show you this conservative host, John Fredericks, who calls Marjorie Green Marjorie Trader Green, a term that originated on the left um, and now is being adopted by people like John Fredericks, who doesn't like the way that Marjorie Green went after Matt Gates. If you remember, Matt Gates congratulated her for getting committee. She responded by saying, Pretty much we had to start getting work done late because of people like you and I'm the true MAGA, um, etc. You know, Marjorie Taylor Green is sitting around sending um, nasty tweets to uh, Matt Gates, who's a hero. You saw that. 
unbelievable. Marjorie Trader Green. Matt Gates sends a tweet out. Very nice. Olive Branch. Hey, congratulations, MTG, on your committee assignments. Great to have you back. We're going to do great things. You know, so good this has happened and looking forward to working with you. And she retweets it out with a comment that basically says, go to hell. I'm power, paraphrasing, but it was a, you know, go to hell. You tied Congress up for a week with your nonsense to try to get MTV ratings. And I'm the leading voice of MAGA. That's, that's her response. I mean, come on, stop. Unbelievable. Matt Gates is a hero, and he was just being a gentleman, mm. right? And then she retweets that. Stop. I always feel like saying, you know what? Go away. Go away, says John Fredericks on Real America's Voice, which is the... Um, the CNN of the bonkers right wing. No, I don't know. It's one of the big ones I've seen there uh, quite often with a lot of the biggies on the right um, have shows there. So this is all very interesting. The phrase I'll keep using is the purpose of my excitement and celebration and motivation to continue the conflict between much of MAGA is not just because I mean it's because uh, a divided MAGA is a weaker MAGA and a weaker MAGA is a better America. And so as we watch more of these feuds occur, we are recognizing that that's weakening the ability of MAGA to do things because you have to be able to unite to really get things done and push for things and unite around a message to attack the other side more effectively when you're spending time attacking yourselves, you're not um, kind of getting into conflict with the other side as effectively. And so we saw a whole lot between Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, covering the clash between them in the ladies' restroom. And then Lauren Boebert in telling that story called Marjorie Greene nasty or her actions nasty and a pretty heated relationship there that is very much broken now and now matt gates too matt gates trying to congratulate marjorie green on her um committee assignments which why she got committee assignments is just beyond reason and her response is pretty much no <laughs> i will not take your congratulations because you are horrible um and you obstructed the speakership process and so now you have that conflict going on. And what I was a little bit worried about was the possibility of after the speakership drama, them kind of coming together and forgetting about it, but it's continued. And that's really, really good to see. Well, it's pretty clear now that George Santos was indeed a drag queen in Brazil. And why do I talk about this story? Why am I updating you on this and I have a video for you? It's not at all because it matters that George Santos was a drag queen. No, wonderful. Do your thing. It matters though that, and there's two key points on this that we'll come back to. Number one, he would join, but not just join, but refuse to speak out against the unbelievable, hateful, bordering on, not bordering on, among many people, violent rhetoric towards uh, drag queens. He is bolstering the talking points and the party that does that, right? 
and is not speaking out against that rhetoric, but then of course would not have wanted him to be demonized when he was having fun in the past, when he was performing, expressing, whatever it might have been. And so that shows you that it's kind of the for me but not you situation. He wanted to be able to be himself, have fun, perform. And then once he wanted power in the Republican Party, he's totally fine allowing other people doing the same thing to get demonized, to get called groomers, just simply um, for being a drag queen. It is so wild what we're seeing about that particular topic, and it shows you his hypocrisy. And number two, I want to just keep holding on to this and keep an eye on it. Because I think if he is going to get pushed out of the Republican Party, it's not going to be because he's a pathological liar. It's not going to be because he is so vile in the lies that he tells. It's going to be because of this story. And that'll show you how broken the Republican Party is and how vile generally their stance is on this. So here's the clip that came out of George Santos again having fun this looks like a blast Neste vídeo inédito ele aparece the com o mesmo vestido vermelho que ele usa nas fotos com a drag Eula dançando em cima do trio elétrico durante a parada gay de Niterói em 2007 And Brazilian news one of the networks over there found that and published it and then George Santos got asked about this So he said, I wasn't a drag queen in Brazil. I was young and I had fun <laughs> at a festival. Yes, you were a drag queen. It's fine. Just say yes. Cool. Wonderful. And then you say, and that's part of why I recognize the disgusting nature of my party. He won't go that far, um, but he should. And so I'm very concerned that, and I'm already seeing some of this, now Republicans are going to take issue with him a little bit. That is one of the most upsetting aspects of this whole story. And so I want to make clear, because I've seen some of this on Twitter, the, we shouldn't be obsessing, as I'm seeing some people do, over him being a drag queen. It's what that story represents about the Republican Party and about George Santos in his hypocritical um, actions. President Joe Biden spoke about mental health, his own experiences with that, the way that he got through challenges that he dealt with because of the loss that he's experienced in his life. Um, and then also just generally societally, how we need to remove the stigma and treat mental health, the challenges we all go through and the treatment that is often necessary as much of something that can be openly discussed as physical ailments. Um, so take a look at this first moment. We have to take the stigma off of mental health. Mental health is no different than you break your arm or your leg. Uh, no, it really isn't. It's God's truth. It is a problem that is a medical problem. And so hardest part is to get people a lot of people, I say most people, to say, to acknowledge that I'm getting help. I'm getting help. That's why we had this effort to deal, my wife, 
dealt with this program to provide for health for, you know, post-traumatic stress for so many, um, so, so many warriors. Pete, you, you, you toted a rifle, man. You were there. You see all the people. I don't know how many people that you just, uh, that need the help. But they, it, it's a help that you need any more than you need if you broke your leg. But we got to take the stigma away. The stigma away from the notion that you need mental health. And similar to pretty much every issue, depending on the community that you're in, this can be such a different reality. Um, I've been in spaces where it's so encouraged and so perfectly wonderful to discuss any particular issue you're having with mental health, your mental health reality in the way that you choose, and others where that would be completely out of place and not be seen as as legitimate as um, a physical injury or whatever it might be, treatment to a physical ailment. And so we still have work to do on that front. There's some places, like I said, where it's gotten really good and then many that have not gotten there. And so I like that he's raising this issue. Second moment where he starts addressing his own experiences and what got him through, the thing that he brings up is the support that he had. Everybody thought I got went home uh, because uh, uh, I went home because I couldn't afford two places. But right now, I, I went home because I get to, you know, kiss my boys goodnight and lay down with Sarah prayers and then my daughter, etc. But I had my mother. I had my mother there. Every morning I'd drop the boys off when they were little to my mom's house. And then later I'd be able to drive them to school and they'd be picked up. But my point is I had so much help. And I had psychological help. Everywhere down there was someone there to basically hold my hand. Well, that's the mental health that a lot of families don't have. They don't have. And a, lot of, and a lot of folks are in a situation where if they just had somebody to talk to. Um, I think in a sense that's oversimplifying, but I agree with the sentiment of so often the thing that can get um, in our personal experiences kind of us through a difficult time. This is separate from a larger mental health um, reality, but can be the people around. It's often the people around you who support you in that. And so I think this comes down to two categories. The first is policy. How do we implement investment into mental health programs to treat people, to allow it to be financially reasonable for people to get that treatment, be supported in that, and have the proper qualified people to talk to, all of that and the medicine side of it. And then also from our leaders, it does make an impact to open up about your own experiences, showing that this can be something on the table. Like he said, as common as a broken leg, because different than physical injuries or physical challenges or whatever it might be, mental health is something every single one of us deals with. Some people get really lucky they never have a problem until they're very old with their physical body and they don't get a broken leg but everybody deals with their mental health reality and so making sure that that is something that can be openly discussed so that people know where they can go for help who they can talk to how they can move forward i think is a very justified cause and something we should absolutely care about tucker carlson has for a reason that i cannot possibly fathom 
gotten obsessed with advocating for the poor tobacco lobby, or for poor big tobacco, I should say. And in the clip I'm going to show you that's the most recent example of this, he is advocating for nicotine. And he's aggravated because he feels people are pushing THC, but demonizing nicotine. How dare they? And watch the end of this clip very closely to what he says about nicotine. It is so strange. Why do they hate tobacco? And it's not because it causes cancer. They don't care about your health. They closed the gyms during COVID. Anyone who closed a gym during a pandemic that killed people who were fat clearly doesn't care about your health at all. We will circle back to that point, but let's watch the full clip. They hate nicotine. They love THC. They're promoting weed to your children, but they're not letting you use tobacco or even non-tobacco nicotine delivery devices, which don't cause cancer. Why do they hate nicotine? Because nicotine frees your mind and THC makes you compliant and passive. That's why they hate it. It's a real threat to them. Why do they hate tobacco? So nicotine opens your mind, whereas THC makes you compliant. You can be controlled with THC. Now, who is pushing THC to our children? I, I'm, I've missed that movement, but I think it's reasonable to say, here are all of the possible health outcomes of any different substance and uh, you can make your decision, but if things have a negative enough outcome, we're gonna regulate them in such a way. Because it's still legal to get tons of nicotine products, just like how people are pushing for all sorts of different THC products to be legal. It's not to say that we can't also attach the conversation about the health outcomes. Tucker Carlson is saying, well, actually you've been misled because nicotine is how you open your mind. I will say though, is it really the right wing's motivation to have an open mind? I haven't noticed that in my personal experience, I'll say. Then to the closing gyms whenever COVID disproportionately hurts people with pre-existing conditions, including obesity. That's not how he said it, but that's how I would say it. Um, that is such a mistelling of what went on. They weren't closing the gyms because it was like, we don't want people to work out. It was because the way that this disease, yes, that affected people in a particular, many different categories, but also it's a respiratory disease that if you're <laughs> right next to somebody <laughs> waiting for them to finish up on the bench press, then uh, you may be more likely to get COVID. Now, let's talk about the other example. You remember this when he brought Troy Nels onto his show to talk about the poor, poor big tobacco. Tonight, Congressman, grateful uh, that you're here willing to stand up for the most American of all pleasures, which is tobacco. Sorry to say it. It's true. It founded the country. Um, tell us why it's important for you to burn a cigar occasionally in your mm. office. Mm. Really addressing the pressing issues of our time. I don't know. Sometimes I genuinely think that he just looks around and thinks, what is the most opposite opinion of the people that I dislike? Okay, people are trying to advocate on behalf of at least being mindful of the health outcomes of tobacco products. I'm going to take the pro-tobacco stance just because I can and just because maybe 
it'll own the libs. And that's the top priority of people like Tucker Carlson. Well, Donald Trump is holding a rally event. I don't know if it's going to be the same type of rally that he normally does, but some sort of public event in South Carolina. And in the lead up to that, he's begging people to love him and support him within the political world. And he's having a hard time getting those endorsements. Now, before we dive into this story, what's exciting is I will be traveling with people TBD. I'll give you more details on who else is going with me um, to South Carolina, do a little road trip like we did to Pennsylvania, Austin to South Carolina. Um, to cover this event. So we will, and by cover, I mean to get interviews with the supporters that go to the event. So we lots of fun and another bonkers experience, no doubt. Look forward to that coming next week. We'll have the clips from it. Um, but here from the Washington Post, advisors to Donald Trump have blanketed South Carolina Republican officials with pleading phone calls in recent weeks in an effort to drum up endorsements and uh, attendees for the former president's first campaign swing of the 2024 cycle next week. But the appeals have run headlong into a complicated new reality. Many of the state's lawmakers and political operatives, and even some of his previous supporters, are not ready to pick a presidential candidate. They find themselves divided between their support for Trump, their desire for a competitive nomination fight in the state, and their allegiance to two South Carolina natives, former Governor Nikki Haley and Senator Tim Scott. And Nikki Haley and Tim Scott both are kind of being floated as possible presidential candidates. Both are said by people close to them to be seriously considering a bid, and Haley is expected to announce in the coming weeks, South Carolina operatives said. The result foretells a Trump launch event in the early primary state with an expected endorsement by uh, definitely someone we all would celebrate the endorsement of, Senator Lindsey Graham, and a reaffirmation of support from Governor Henry McMaster that positions the former president as a serious contender but stops short of demonstrating the dominance that he wants enjoyed so this is very telling because in previous times say the build up to the 2020 election trump would have had absolutely no problem getting everyone in south carolina republican politics for the most part to come out and endorse him support him at this first event he's having for his 2024 presidential campaign in south carolina um but he's not able to do that. And it shows you, as we've been covering, the weaker nature of this campaign and the weaker nature just of him as a figure. He no longer completely demands the Republican Party. It's not to say he still doesn't have an incredible hold over much of the Republican Party and could still very well win the Republican primary, but he is a lot weaker. And that's important to keep up with. And so it's going to be interesting to see Watching this dynamic play out makes it more likely in my mind that someone or multiple people will be challenging him. And that is going to be a blast. That is going to be such a blast watching Trump, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, uh, and maybe Ron DeSantis. Those are the people who are really clear. If Tim Scott jumped in, just go after each other would be quite the delight. Uh, Steve Bannon's very unhappy with the Lindsey Graham angle of this and does not want Trump to associate with Lindsey Graham, which I disagree with Steve Bannon on probably almost everything except drinking water being good. Um, and this I agree with. No one should associate with Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Collection of senators led by Lindsey Graham 
which I have no earthy idea why he's around President Trump. He's a cancer. He is a cancer. Okay, I don't know if I would use that word. That's a little aggressive. That's metastasizing. And President Trump's got to be warned. There's nothing good that comes from having, a, a, you know, Mitch McConnell's mini-me, the snake, Lindsey Graham around you at all. Collection of senators. Mm. So it will be interesting to see if the only endorsements Trump can get are people like Lindsey Graham and the Steve Bannons of the world are unhappy with that. That's another layer of conflict within this campaign from someone who is a Trump loyalist, Steve Bannon for the most part, but upset on this and all of it. I'm just enjoying watching playing out for sure. Let me know what you think. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Luke Beasley official. We talked previously within the context of Trump's wild response to this, the fact that the Supreme Court in the investigation they did was not able to find the leaker of the Dobbs decision, of course, overturning Roe v. Wade. And I have an element of this that's very fascinating, which is almost all of the individuals who would have had the ability to leak this information had to sign a sworn affidavit saying they did not, except the Supreme Court justices themselves, which I think is wrong here from the Daily Beast. Supreme Court justices didn't sign affidavits during leak investigation. Supreme Court justices were consulted in the investigation over who leaked the draft decision overturning abortion rights, but they were not asked to sign affidavits according to a memo by Supreme Court Marshal Gail Curley. The short statement by Curley also says none of the justices or their spouses were implicated during the investigation, which ultimately implicated no one. The statement doesn't elaborate on what questions the justices were asked. In November, conservative Justice Samuel Alito faced accusations he leaked a landmark 2014 ruling on birth control access under the Affordable Care Act, which he denied. Jenny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, who vocally wants to overturn the rulings that federally protect gay marriage and birth control, has also come under scrutiny for her outspoken political persona, spearheading efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Our Supreme Court is so wild these days. Um, so to walk you through the timeline of kind of the leak story, initially when it leaked, at least the narrative from the white right wing what the white wing <laughs> um, was that it was the left. It was someone within the Supreme Court who was a left winger who was angry about this ruling and wanted to put it out in the public so that people would protest, so the justices would switch their ruling. But as time went by, that didn't sound quite right because I think most people can reasonably assume a justice doesn't want to be seen flipping their decision because of protests. That would make the Supreme Court seem very unstable and uncertain if all of a sudden protests broke out and a bunch of justices or a couple or one switched their um, stance on this. And so then it started to be thought that maybe a conservative um, within the Supreme Court, a staffer or a justice themselves, saw the fact that Chief Justice John Roberts was attempting to get some of the more conservative justices to switch over and take a more moderate position. And the concern from the conservatives within the Supreme Court may have been, if John Roberts has enough time before the final ruling is put out, he might budge someone and prevent this from being overturned. And so we're going to leak it 
so that it has to stay like this and justices don't want to be seen as flip-flopping. So that seems more likely to me. It's all speculation. And then the story comes out that Justice Alito may, at least he's suspected to have leaked a 2014 ruling. That's what one of the people who he allegedly leaked it to said, at least verbally leaked this decision. And that would set a precedent where maybe Justice Alito is a little more loosey-goosey on that type of thing. And it was him. But again, all speculation, all very alleged uh, things that I'm saying here, but that's kind of how we got to now. We don't know who the leaker is, but within the investigation, they don't even have the justices do the thing that all the other staff members have to do who had access to this material. That to me seems off. I think they should also have to uh, sign a sworn affidavit so we know it wasn't a justice or we know at least that they committed to that under threat of perjury. Well, more documents have been found uh, in Joe Biden's possession or at his Wilmington, Delaware residence by the Justice Department. Here from the Washington Post, a Justice Department search of President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, Friday prompted authorities to take possession of six additional items with classified markings and some related materials, according to Mr. Biden's personal attorney, um, Bob Bauer. And so I want to show you the difference between the left's response and the right's response to this story, okay? And it shows you kind of the difference in how partisan people are in a situation where a story like this breaks about someone who's more aligned with them or in their party, whatever it might be. And what we saw and what I'll show you with right-wingers here is for the most part, the right wing jumped in to defend Trump, say that there's nothing there, say that it doesn't matter. And then the Biden document story breaks and the right wing thinks it's very serious, even though the facts of it are less severe than Trump's. Again, still hold any necessary people accountable, still investigate it, said it all, but just factually, definitely the obstruction isn't there like it was with Trump. And yet the right wing is taking that seriously and not Trump. But then most people on the left and Democrats that you see are just saying, listen, investigate it. Great. We don't have to cover for Biden. We don't have to say, don't talk about this. We don't have to lie like we've seen so much with the Trump Mar-a-Lago case and the right wing's responses to it. We can just be honest and say, hey, if you want to talk about the comparison, we can explain why Trump's is more severe. But accountability, if necessary, investigate. It's just not that hard. So here's a couple examples of Democrats just reasonably responding to this, and then I'll show you the opposite. No one can defend having classified documents sitting at a Penn Center or a personal residence. And I believe the president will acknowledge that that was a, a mistake. But character is acknowledging mistakes, being forthcoming and honest. And I think the American people will judge him based on if he's fully cooperating and if he's fully honest. And if he is, I think they will respect that. No okay. one can... So saying no one can defend, and also, if he handles this correctly, complies, then that will be um, good in the eyes of the American people. Then you have Democratic Senator Dick Durbin. When I finish reading it, he takes it back and puts it in the briefcase and leaves the scene. I mean, that's how carefully we review these documents, to think that any of them ended up uh, in, in, in boxes, uh, in storage, one place or the other is just unacceptable. But having said that, 
Let me make this point clear. Joe Biden has said from the start, we are going to be totally... And then getting into how Biden is complying with the investigation, but saying it's unacceptable for those documents to have been handled in that way. So that's one example of how you could treat a situation like this. You've seen plenty of examples of right-wingers defending Trump in a more severe situation. Now let's see how they're responding uh, to the Biden story. It's just this double standard that is, it's unnerving, uh, Harris. Again, this is why we've got to have this select committee that investigates how government is being used to be weaponized against political adversaries. You look at the two different ways this was handled. Mar-a-Lago, very public. You have a, uh, you have a search warrant. Uh, you've got cameras on this thing. This one? This one is handled where the American public don't even get to know. And the White House wants to tell you that this president is cooperating from day one. If he's cooperating, why aren't we seeing everything? Remember, the best antiseptic to corruption is sunlight. Always, it's this nebulous, why don't we know all the details? What details? What do you want to see? What, you need a camera of Biden hanging out in his house? Like, what are, what are you wanting to see? Biden has completely opened up to the DOJ, the properties, and said, look into them. And so that's what they're doing. The talking point of why was there a raid on Trump and not on Biden is one I'm getting so sick of. And the way that I kind of wish I could respond if I was talking with someone like that Tom uh, Emmer, Congressman Tom Emmer, is by saying, I think you can answer that question. This is something I do in a very annoying fashion in my personal life on occasion, which is if I get asked a really, really dumb, simple question and I'm in kind of an annoying, spicy mood, we'll say, I'll just flip it back around and say, I, I think you can figure that one out. And that's what I wish I could do with him. Tom, just think about it, okay? There was a raid on Trump, but not on Biden. Why? Let's just really put our thinking hat on. Trump was asked time and time again to return the documents. He did not. He was asked more time and time again. He did not. And on and on and on until after months, the National Archives had to turn it over to the FBI and the raid happened because they couldn't do it in a peaceful manner. They couldn't get him to voluntarily turn over the documents that he knew that he had. So they had to do it by force. Biden, right when his team found the documents, they turned them over and opened up the necessary locations to investigation, to a review, to be looked through. So what would be the purpose of a raid? I just really want to understand that. If they're already at the house that they got access to, what would the raid be for? They're there already. They were let in already. They can look wherever they want already. Not wherever, but um, you know the necessary places. I just don't get the talking point. What more information do you want, Tom Emmer? Ugh. Okay, uh, next example here, and this is with um, Christina Bob. Joe Biden has done in spades much worse, much worse than anything Donald Trump did. Donald Trump didn't do anything illegal, neither did his legal team, and um, I, you know, we'll we'll see how it all plays out. Joe Biden has. Joe Biden hasn't done. Um, or Joe Biden has done in spades much worse than anything Donald Trump did. Donald Trump didn't do anything illegal. That's Christina Bob's claim. Come on. 
come on. We'll, you know what? We'll take some dishonesty. But let's not be that bad at your dishonesty, Christina. Come on. We got to be better than that. Trump did nothing illegal and did much less than what Biden did. When, when you line up the facts of the situation, both include classified documents. Okay. And then what are the questions that follow that? How many? All right. Way more on Trump's side. Were they turned over when asked? No. Yes. That kind of answers your question up front. Um, and for how long were they not turned over after asked? Biden, pretty much zero. Trump for months and months. So all of these talking points I've gotten so exhausted with, and it makes it hard to spend time on the interesting element of, hey, Biden shouldn't have had those classified documents where he did because one of the sides is screaming about the fact that this is actually worse. Some of them are saying that this is the left trying to take down Biden. This is all coordinated to take him down. Some are saying that Biden should be raided for no reason. And so it's hard not to respond to that, which we really wouldn't have to do if we were in a more reasonable world. A fascinating back and forth occurred on CNN between the host, Aaron Burnett, and Mick Mulvaney, of course, worked in the Trump administration as the head of the Office of Management and Budget, and then at one point in time was the acting chief of staff to Trump. And when he was in the Trump administration, he was against the uh, usage of the debt ceiling as a negotiation tactic, because as we have talked about here, whenever you have to be willing to fall through on a threat and the threat is not raising the debt ceiling and the ramifications of not raising the debt ceiling are disastrous, that is a very bad place to go. And when you're saying, as the Republican Party is right now, we want to cut spending and we're not going to raise the debt ceiling unless the Democrats agree to cutting spending, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the uh, debt ceiling has nothing to do with new spending. That is falling through on financial obligations we've already committed to. Spending, we're just paying off, the analogy that people use is, um, we're just paying off our credit card bill. This is not new spending. And so negotiations about new spending should happen when you're actually authorizing that new spending, in my opinion. Um, and it used to be Mick Mulvaney's opinion. He's now shifted it. And I love the way that the host pressed him on that. And one of the things he said was just so, so telling. Of course, we're in the White House. You were the OMB director for President Trump in 2019. Debt ceiling comes around. Um, you all wanted to raise it. Here's what he said then about the debt ceiling. I can't imagine anybody ever even thinking of using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. That's a very, very sacred thing in our country, debt ceiling. We can never play with it. McInnes, said, I can't imagine anybody thinking of using it as a negotiating wager. A few weeks later, you announced that you and Trump's advisors all agreed that a debt ceiling hike should not be tied to any other policy proposals. You wanted a clean debt ceiling raise. Yet this time I saw that you tweeted that you support the House Republicans who are insisting on spending cuts in exchange for a debt ceiling deal. What's changed? Why are you OK with it this time? Well, I do. I, I think that if you've got a situation like you have now where the Republicans are in charge of the House and the... Okay, and I want you to watch as he answers this question. The uh, other correspondent on the right of the screen 
because the facial expressions that come from her are exactly what I was feeling while watching this. And he says a whole lot of words and he says it as if it's making sense, but all he's doing is just saying, well, cause now I kind of wanna, I just wanna, the Democrats uh, cause it's the Republicans. Charge of the Senate and the White House doesn't it just make sense that there would be some sort of compromise? Yes, if all three, if, if one party's in charge of all branches of government, like the Democrats have been for the last couple of years, or were under Barack Obama, or we were during the under early days of Trump, it's not surprising that they don't reach out to the other party. Under these circumstances, with a divided government, I don't understand why there isn't more discussion. And to the MAGA wing of the party. So your uh, issue you was, so much, you're saying, the issue you have it, it now is, just, I just want, I'm sorry, Mike, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying, is you're saying, um, yeah. that that this is about politics that when there's divided that you're fine with the negotiation but not not when it's all it, one party right. so it's not actually about the debt ceiling being sacred and debt being sacred mm. that, that, that's how washington works aaron i mean that's that's that, it, that's how it worked for the last two years no one seemed to complain about it uh, that's just how washington has always what, what are you saying do you or do you not think as trump said in that clip and at the time you agreed with the debt ceiling is sacred. Do you agree with that sentiment or not? That's the question, not a hoobie-jeebie-jeebie-jeebie-jee. <laughs> Always worked. Look, you've got a situation here where you can do something like Barack Obama did back in 2011, and I think it was 13 as well, where he gave a little bit, the Democrats got a lot, and we, we, we increased the debt ceiling. Why doesn't that model work here? Why isn't it just as unreasonable to say you're not going to do anything uh, like the Democrats are saying, as the Republicans have said, they want everything. Keep in mind, it's not the MAGA wing of the party. So using a lot of words to not really answer the question, do you or do you not support or are you or are you not okay with using the debt ceiling as a negotiation tactic when it is so crucial that we raise it? It should be something that we can brawl it out over here when we're debating spending, when we actually have the power to either spend or not spend, when we authorize different spending going towards different programs. But once we've spent the money and we're just paying our bills, my personal opinion, and Mick Mulvaney has been on multiple sides of it, is that just needs to happen because we will follow through on our obligations. So that's not where um, we're going to try to get political wins in or policy wins at all. And it is fascinating because he said, quote, that's how Washington works which is so fascinating and telling because he's admitting there, seems at least to be, to Aaron Burnett that, well, come on, are you asking if I keep the same principle over multiple years? No, the principle is just something I say at a particular time if it's advantageous. Then if it's not later, I flip it. And everybody does that. It's Washington. That's how Washington works. What are you talking about? Some of us, Mick, try to hold principles because that's what makes them principles no matter the circumstances for the most part um and try to be consistent with these types of stances maybe not something he understands thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show we will see you tomorrow